Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Hey, welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta in Atlanta. And as you can see, we are now doing what millions of Americans are doing right now. We are social distancing. We may be separated by distance, but now more than ever, we recognize that we are still part of a community. We're connected as citizens who have to act in concert with each other to protect ourselves, our loved ones, and all our fellow citizens. So we're partnering with Facebook and Instagram for tonight's CNN Global Town Hall. In our first one, you may remember two weeks ago, the seats in this room were full. Last week, and again tonight, following the guidelines against large gatherings, they're empty. And Sanjay and I are in separate studios. Same goes for all the guests joining us tonight. We can't let those barriers, however, of distance and difficulty prevent us from continuing to report facts about the virus, what we know and what we don't know. And it's facts, not fear, that we want to bring you tonight in the next two hours. In partnership with, uh, with Facebook and Instagram, we're going to continue answering the questions that you've been sending in from around the country and the world. Some of them are text, some are video, some are live, and they are all things you want to know. So the bottom line is uh, what this outbreak won't stop is our continued reporting on it. So while the seats uh, there may be empty, the town hall is going to go on, and we're going to spend the next two hours talking to experts, including White House Task Force member Dr. Anthony Fauci, also a top World Health Organization official, experts in emergency medicine and mental health as well. We're also going to check in with our reporters from around the globe about what they have been seeing right now, including in China, which tonight, after enduring so much, may may finally be the source of at least a, a glimmer of hope. And even those quarantined in places like Italy and Spain have found ways to unite and show their love and support for each other. You've probably seen the images in Italy of people singing together from neighboring balconies. Well, in Spain, every night around 8 p.m., people clap in their apartments by open windows to show their support of the doctors and nurses and medical professionals risking their lives every day. Listen to the sound of a community clapping. every night all across Spain. Citizens applauding the bravest public servants, signaling they are all in this together, and together they will overcome it, even in the face of a challenge that's growing by the hour. Healthcare workers are on edge as supply shortages loom. Financial markets plummet because of deepening coronavirus fears. An eerily quiet Times Square. The latest reminder that life today is different and will be for some time. The coronavirus is now reported in all 50 states in the U.S. 
with more than 13,000 positive cases, according to the CDC. In this country, so far, more than 150 people have died. At our last town hall one week ago, there were at least 1,500 cases in 46 states. Two weeks ago, it was just around 200 cases. We have a choice to make. Do we just want to keep going on with business as usual and end up being Italy? Cities and states across the country are doing their part to try to flatten the curve. Restaurants, bars, shops are largely closed. The Bay Area in California has instituted a shelter-in-place order for more than 7 million residents. And the federal government has asked all Americans to avoid gathering in groups of more than 10. It's within all of us. How I behave affects your health. How you behave affects my health. Never, I think, have we been so dependent on each other, at least not in my lifetime. Globally, there are now more than 200,000 cases, and there have been more than 8,000 deaths, according to the World Health Organization. Though there are some signs of a slowdown in China and South Korea, and in the U.S., the first vaccine trial has just begun. But still, experts say this isn't going away anytime soon. The worst is yes ahead for us. It is how we respond to that challenge that's going to determine what the ultimate endpoint is going to be. With that sobering assessment in mind, I want to get some thoughts from uh, from Sanjay, uh, Sanjay about where you think we are. Well, look, I mean, Anderson, obviously so much has changed even in a week since our last town hall. Uh, tonight, me here in Atlanta, you in New York, to keep our physical distance. And, and, I, and I, physical distance is how I think we should start describing this new reality, Anderson. It's really important. But I also hope that we can still be social and connected and not become isolated, which is a real concern even now. But regardless of what you call it, Anderson, there was some news that really jumped out at me this week. And that is some new data, some new modeling data from China that shows four out of five people who were, di- who were diagnosed with coronavirus contracted it from someone who didn't know they had it. Let me repeat that. Four out of five people, 80%, who were diagnosed with the coronavirus contracted it from someone who didn't know they had it. There's a message in there, I think, for all of us. We are, as I said, all dependent on each other more than ever, uh, and uh, more than I can certainly ever remember in my lifetime, and it's why we all have to behave like we have the virus. If you, if you behave like you have the virus, it'll t- tell you how to act throughout your day. You'll be more careful, you'll be more mindful, you'll slow down, and hopefully, Anderson, we'll all be mm. a little bit more kind to each other yeah. as well. Be careful, act as if you have the virus already. That's right. Sanjay, late today, uh, New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio warned that the city is two to three weeks away from running out of medical supplies like masks and ventilators, that is, breathe, breathing machines. Uh, a doctor friend of mine actually texted me this morning. He's texting all his friends. He works at a hospital. said, if anybody has any masks out there, can you please donate them to the hospital because we're starting to ration them out? I mean, that's terrifying. New York City and state have seen numbers skyrocket in the last several days, in part because of ramped up testing. So according to the city health department, there are at least 3,600 plus confirmed cases, more than 1,100 of them new today. At least 22 people have died. CNN's Erica Hill is in Times Square uh, for us now. What other options does New York City have to get supplies other than help from the federal government? I mean, that's that's the issue for so many municipalities, not just New York City, for so many hospitals. The mayor saying today they're good for the next couple of weeks, but he is very concerned about April because their reserves, he said, will not last. And he is calling directly on the president, Anderson, for some help. You know, Erica, we, we've been talking about the ventilator issue, I mean, for, for weeks now, and, and very clear that we don't have enough for the country. I'm curious uh, about New York, though. What, what did Governor Cuomo have to say about the ventilators, the breathing machines specifically? 
he was addressing those directly today. He said they can locate about five to 6,000, Sanjay, but he says they need 30,000. He said he's been talking to other governors. Every state is trying to buy them. The problem is they're just not there. He said he even sent people to China. What Governor Cuomo said is he really needs this Defense Procurement Act to go into play here because it's the federal government, he says, who can really make a difference by putting these different factories and manufacturers to work making ventilators. Erica Hill, thanks very much for us. We go next to Italy, which surpassed China today in the number of people who've lost their lives to the virus and the rise in cases and fatalities has been steep. Just two weeks ago, according to the World Health Organization, there were a bit fewer than 3,100 cases there, 107 fatalities. This time last week, it was more than 12,000 cases, 827 people had died. Today, according to Italian authorities, the death toll stands at more than 3,400 and the case count now tops 41,000 with 5,300 new cases reported today. CNN contributor and Daily Beast Rome Bureau Chief uh, Barbie Nadeau joins us right now from the Italian capital. Uh, Barbie, a Chinese Red Cross official toured Italy today. What did he have to say about the effectiveness of the lockdown there? He said we're doing it wrong. He was so disappointed to see that city buses were still moving, to see that people were still out jogging. He thought the stores were open too long and he thought that we just weren't locked down enough. And uh, as a result of that, or in, uh, certainly a coincidence, the Italian government said they're deploying the military today to help with the lockdown, to keep people off the streets and into their houses. As these numbers rise, I think Italians just don't quite get it yet that we need to stay in the house, stay in our places. I, I hope a lot of people are paying attention to that because, again, a lot of people are saying we need to f learn some of the lessons that you've seen, Barbie, there in Italy. But, you know, the thing that strikes me is that there's enormous pressure, enormous strain on the healthcare system there in Italy, not to mention the possibility of simply being unable to seek medical care for, for needs outside of the virus. What, 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 has that improved at all? Is that just getting worse in terms of the capacity? No, it's getting much worse. I mean, you think if you have a ruptured appendix or you break your leg or something like that, you know, you don't really know that you'll be able to go to the doctor. We also, our dentists are closed, our doctors are closed. We really have no medical care right now unless it's on a real emergency basis. And even then, you, you're, you're a little bit afraid or people are afraid that if they go into an emergency room that they'll contract the virus. So these right. are, you know, the collateral damage, the, the domino effect of all of this. You know, Barbie, one of the things that's so scary about what the Red Cross official is saying, and I mean, if what Italy has done thus far is still not enough, it's, it's a real warning to, uh, to folks here in the United States, because there's nothing worse than instituting half measures and, you know, everybody's supposedly staying at home, but clearly they're going out more than they should or have more access to travel than they should. Uh, and then they could be told, you know, this is for a month. And then if it's not enough, it's just going to be extended even more. It's better to have it be all at once, to have it be more drastic, to err on the side of being more cautious than it is to let this drag on. No, that's definitely right. It's time to just rip off the Band-Aid and make everybody stay at home. You know, people are out walking their dogs, but you see the same dog with four or five different people throughout the day. You know, the grocery store, people are buying one banana or a sack of potatoes at the time. People aren't necessarily thinking the way they need to be thinking. One of the things they do make now, everybody has to wear a mask if you go into the grocery store. If you don't, they give you a piece of plastic essentially to put over your face. Everybody has to wear gloves when they're outside. So they're trying to get people to think in, in the terms that they might be carriers, even though they don't have symptoms. Yeah. Well, just as Sanjay said, act as if you are infected. Barbie uh, Nadeau, appreciate it. Coming up next, uh, we go to China, which is reported to uh, no new, it's reported no new locally transmitted cases for the first time since the pandemic began. The numbers, though, 
are still daunting. According to the World Health Organization, total cases have stayed at roughly 80 to 81,000 over the last three weeks as the death toll climbed from 3,015 to more than 3,200. David Culver is in Shanghai for us. Uh, So, David, no new locally transmitted infections reported since the pandemic began today. Um, Assuming those numbers are accurate, the data is accurate, which there may be questions about. I mean, how are people greeting that milestone? Yeah, Anderson, we know there are a lot of questions about that, people questioning the data, but the government is our only source for that, the National Health Commission in particular. So the World Health Organization relies on it, and President Trump has even said that as of now, he has no reason to question it. He just has to accept it and move forward. It's being received, obviously, very positively here. It's being highly promoted by state media. What's interesting is hearing Barbie say that folks there in Italy are not taking it as seriously. I would say here, it seems that people are hesitant to breathe easy. They're still very mm. reluctant to think that this thing has passed them. And perhaps that is something that World Health Organization officials are, are grateful for because they say it avoids complacency. Yeah, and I guess there's still this concern. Is there going to be a resurgence of cases? We, we, we don't know the answer to that. I know, David. But what does the Chinese government plan to do now? What is their role now? Well, this is a concern, Sanjay, and it's a concern of a second wave. But they're portraying this as really an external threat more than anything else. Their fear is imported cases, because while the number of locally transmitted cases has sat at zero over the past 24 hours since the most recent reporting, they say they've seen 34 imported cases coming from other countries. So what are they doing? Well, they're stepping up some of the screening procedures and evaluations of people who are traveling in from all over the world, which is a complete reversal of what we saw just a few weeks ago when everyone was fearing people traveling from China. Now they're fearing folks coming from other countries and they're putting people in a mandatory government designated quarantine facility as soon as they come in for 14 days. And also those lockdowns are still in place. I mean, it was eight weeks ago today, Sanjay, that we were in Wuhan and you and I were communicating throughout that period. But that's eight weeks that people have been living under this extreme lockdown in many cases, sealed inside their homes. David Culver in Shanghai. David, thanks very much. In, uh, in Washington, the president and task force members briefed the public on a wide range of subjects, including the ongoing equipment shortages, testing problems, perhaps a promising drug to try. And there were a string of answers from the president that raised, well, in many cases, more questions than anything else. Joining us now, a member of the task force, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Fauci, again, thank you for being with us, given your busy schedule. What's the most important thing you want people to know tonight? You know, I think you just were mentioning it just a few moments ago is the importance of people to take very seriously the guidelines about physical separation. You mentioned the idea of transmission of infection, not only when someone is symptomatic, but we're getting more and more information that someone can transmit even when they're asymptomatic. So in order to protect oneself, society, and particularly the vulnerable people, we've really got to adhere to the physical separation You know them well now, avoiding crowds, stay out of bars, stay out of restaurants, stay out of places where there's a congregation of people, and particularly individuals who are elderly or individuals who have an underlying condition should essentially self-isolate themselves for the time being in order to shield themselves from what might be an innocent, unintended, inadvertent transmission of infection to them. That's the message I would really like Mm -hmm. to get out particularly to the younger people who may not take it seriously. I mean, I just think back when I was young, I kind of felt like I was invulnerable. So, well, you know, I'll do fine. But it's not just you. You know, it's you and society and the people that are vulnerable. 
So please cooperate. We're going through a very difficult, unprecedented time right now. And, and, and Dr. Fauci, we are going to talk a little bit more about the specific risk to young people a little bit later. But I want to ask you something about what Ambassador Burks, who's a coordinator for the White House Coronavirus Task Force, what she said on another network about the possibility of a federal air travel shutdown. And what, and what she said was, uh, was everything is on the table. I mean, is that is that something you want to see? Do you think that would be effective? You know, I don't, I don't know, Sanjay. Uh, I mean, when, when Dr. Burke said everything is on the table, it's truthful. We discuss everything in the task force. I have not heard a serious discussion about shutting down domestic travel. Might that come up the next time we start looking at this and we look at it constantly? Certainly, I think that's what Dr. Burks meant by everything's on the table. But there's no plan tomorrow or the next day to seriously think about shutting down domestic air travel. Um, a question about something that happened today, uh, Dr. Fauci. The president said that the FDA will fast track antiviral treatments for patients with coronavirus, uh, saying that an anti-malarial drug would be made available. And he said um, he said that the drug would be made available almost immediately. Um, when we when the public hears that, and obviously there's a lot of interest, a lot of hope in this, how much confidence should we put in that? And, and do we know that that drug would even work? Because, as you know, uh, FDA Commissioner Hahn, he, he sort of he didn't go that far. No, no. So so l- let me put it into perspective for the viewers uh, and, 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 and perhaps we'll understand it better. There is a drug, two drugs. They're, they're very similar. Chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. They've been used for decades for malaria, as well as for the treatment of certain autoimmune diseases like lupus. It's a very mm-hmm. inexpensive drug. It's tried and true. It's been around for a long time. There's been anecdotal, non-proven anecdotal data that it works. When people give it to someone, it makes them better. But when you have an uncontrolled trial, you can never dis- definitively say that it works. In addition, there's been some in vitro data in the test tube. You put hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine in with the virus, it tends to uh, impede the virus. It's done that with a number of other viruses. What was said today at the press conference, this is an already approved drugs. So it could be available, for example, when you Mm -hmm. use it off label, which means somebody uses it for a purpose that it wasn't officially proved for. What the president was saying is that we're going to look at all of these drugs and we're going to try to get them available in the context of some sort of a protocol where you just don't distribute drugs willy nilly. You may make it more accessible than you would have previously, but you do it in the context to at least get some feel for both safety and whether it works. That was the message about the malaria drug, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. I mean, uh, you know, the, the reason we ask, obviously, Dr. Fauci about this, and, and it's constantly this balance, I imagine, in your job and everyone's job, this balance between, between hope and honesty. I mean, it was described, as you know, at the press conference as a, as a game changer. I mean, w- w- again, w- how, how should the public interpret that sort of thing? You know, uh, Sanjay, I'm not so sure it was, it was I mean, I, I was watching it on TV. I was you know, around the corner from from the conference looking at a TV. I don't think it was necessarily described as a game changer, but but let's make sure people understand what it is. Today, there are no proven safe and effective therapies for the coronavirus. Okay. That doesn't mean 
that we're not going to do everything we can to make things that have even a hint of efficacy more readily available. So long as you do it in the context of some sort of protocol that would take a look of getting some information about safety and efficacy. But there's no magic drug out there right now. Okay. Uh, I just want to, Ms. Anderson, just want to put it in uh, non-doctor terms because I'm not very smart. Uh, people should not go to their doctor and say, I want chloroquine um, because I hear that may work. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, I think we, if you would want it, if I wanted to use chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, I'd try to do it in some sort of expanded access clinical trial as opposed to just going. People are going to do it anyway. But I mean, as a matter of principle, to just go out and say, prescribe this for me, that, but what that would do would probably deplete the supplies for the people who might need it if it shows to be working. I mean, that's one of the real, I think, unintended consequences of everybody out there flooding, trying to get the drug. Um, so, Dr. Fauci, Mayor de Blasio announced today that the New York City is expected to run out of medical supplies in two to three weeks. I spoke to him last night. I just want to play a bit of, of what he said and have you respond. What I'm really deeply concerned about is medical supplies and then beyond that even other basic supplies that people need in their lives but the medical supply situation anderson uh you're talking about ventilators uh, surgical masks surgical gowns really basic stuff that we're deeply concerned about where we're going to be in a few weeks and here's the problem the federal government is absent in this discussion right now what about that dr fauci is the federal government absent in the discussion and what can a city do no no, I, I spoke to Mayor de Blasio today by phone, and, and I understand he has, he's, he has a, a significant problem that he's trying to, to address at the local level and is looking for some federal help. I mean, right now, if you look at what's going on, there's a strategic national stockpile in which there are at least 12,700 ventilators in there, as well as tens of millions of masks. That may not be enough. So what the federal government is doing, and it only it isn't just the federal government that needs to do it. It's got to be also local states, private industry and others working together with the federal government. But what's being done right now, as you may have heard, that the, the president is tapping the Department of Defense to get many more ventilators into the stockpile so they'll be ready to use, as well as doing things like getting more masks. About beds, that's important. One of the ways you can obviate the problem of beds is to do something that's been suggested strongly. To the best of your capability, put off and cancel elective surgical and medical procedures. Because many of those procedures, as elective as they are, they consume personal protective equipment like masks and gowns and gloves and things like that. So if you do that, you're not going to completely solve the problem but you'll help mitigate the problem. That's one of the things. The other things is that we have a couple of naval ships, the Mercy and other ships that can be there that can then come by and one is coming to New York and then free up beds that you could put non-coronavirus patients there to free up beds. Again, it isn't the absolute solution to what is a problem. I get calls all the time from my colleagues in various places saying it looks like they're running out of equipment. 
We've got to meet the challenge and do as best as we can to be able to fulfill the needs. All right. We've got to take a quick break. We're going to return with uh, our viewers' questions for Dr. Fauci as our CNN Facebook Global Town Hall continues. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. back taking questions in the CNN Facebook Global Town Hall for Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, uh, we're going to get to a question in a minute. Um, we, uh, we've got some questions, though, from people who've been wondering why you haven't been at the last two White House task force press briefings. I think a lot of people like to hear from you and feel confident in what you are saying. Why haven't you been there? Well, the reason is that I had some really important stuff that I needed to do back at the NIH, which is my real original day job. Also, they want to just get different perspectives up there. I'll be on tomorrow. I'm told that I'm going to be at the press conference tomorrow. But you're right. A lot of people were concerned, A, that I'm sick, that I died, or that the president is mad at, is angry with me. None of the above. I'm fine. And I'll be back. I just really had some important work regarding the vaccine and the drug situation that I really needed to be physically present with my team at the NIH, which have important things to do. And it kind of conflicted with when the press conference was. It was really a very innocent thing. I'll be back tomorrow. I want to get to our viewer questions. This one is sent in via Facebook from Sarah Peterson. She asked, why isn't the president practicing social distancing in the White House, and especially during briefings, while video and photos are being taken? Shouldn't they be leading by example? You all are kind of crowded up on on the podium. Well, you know, it's a very important point, and it's really related, Anderson, to the question you just asked me. One of the reasons why they decided they wanted to rotate a bit and give people with different types of expertise. Like today was a more of a regulatory issue with the FDA and the different drugs. So they really wanted to focus mostly on the FDA. And they figured rather than have everybody who's involved on the stage, they want to just socially distance a little. It wasn't exactly precise, but we're seeing that there. We're also seeing that in the situation room. As a matter of fact, we were there in the situation room and the vice president was telling people, you know, go to one of the outside rooms and look at it on the screen. So we're not just completely discarding that. But in order to really do the job, you kind of have to be together a bit. Good answer, Dr. Fauci. You got to take care of yourself. Um, Bonnie Richardson is a retiree in Mifflintown, Pennsylvania, and she sent in this video. Take a look. At what point would they ramp up testing to those who do not have symptoms so they can find out how the virus is spreading? I know right now they do not have enough tests, but wouldn't it be prudent to get enough tests to include young people without symptoms? What do you think, Dr. Fauci? No, it's a good point. Uh, but, But the issue is, as you know, we've had issues with testing. We're getting testing standing up right now much, much, much better than we did. The critical issue is to get the testing first to those areas where you have somebody who is, in fact, having symptoms and you want to see if they're, in fact, infected. The idea of doing a broad screening, including asymptomatic people, is not a bad idea. I've been talking about that for a while. But when you prioritize what you need to do, we really need to get the testing to the people who are in a situation where you really need to know. The other is surveillance. It's a valid question, and I'm for it. But right now, it's not the highest priority. Okay. 
Dr. Fauci, I know you've been asked a lot of tough questions over the years and you've had people yell and scream at you. So nothing we ask is anything you haven't already faced uh, throughout your career. But when people hear like all the stuff, all the talk about testing for the last couple of weeks, all the verbs are like we're getting it standing up. It's in the pipeline. It's been sent out. When can we stop using all that kind of jargon and just say, yeah, there's testing. It works. It's there. I mean, it's just one of those things that it frustrates people that it's every week. It's the kind of a different verbiage. No, I totally agree, Anderson. I mean, completely. I mean, I feel as frustrated as anybody else right now that we've gotten the private sector involved. The heavy hitters who are making it, who can do the high throughput, they're out there. They're telling us that we're able now, not immediately, but in a very graded way, in a very steep way, going to be able to have testing that is going to be available for the people who need it. Walk through, drive through doctor's office. This is what we're told. Every time you say that, Anderson, somebody calls up and says, I tried to get a test and I couldn't get it. Now, does that mean that it's broadly unavailable or is that just a one-off? I can tell you right now, we are much, much better off than we were a couple of weeks ago. Are we perfect where everybody can get what they want? No, obviously not. The phone calls tell us that. It's also frustrating when people hear like celebrities and famous people getting tests um, and other folks not able to. But you know all this. Uh, This next question is on an Instagram video question sent in by Carolyn Brush. Uh, Let's take a look. Hi, Anderson. This is Carolyn from New Jersey. My question is, what if I've been self-isolating for two weeks and my son and his family are also doing the same thing? After that two-week period, will we be able to see each other? I really would love to see my grandchildren. Thank you. Dr. Fauci? Yeah, you know, the, 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 is she talking about the, the uh, recommendation for the 15 days for now and then we'll reevaluate for someone to self-isolate themselves? Or is she talking about the fact that she may have been exposed and she wants to self-isolate? There are two different things there. And and the answer to the first one is if you're doing it like you're an elderly person or you have someone with a a condition and you want to self-isolate, you do it for the time where you're in a situation where there's a risk. We may renew that after 15 days. But if you're a person who may have been exposed and say, I'm going to go in 14 days, I'm going to self-isolate myself. After those 14 days, if you have no symptoms, you haven't been infected, you're okay after 14 days, you can go out. But there are two different scenarios there. So we got to be careful. We know that we're answering the right question. All right. Um, I'll take the next one here. Uh, Roy Wolf has a PhD in studying drinking water quality, and he's in Fullerton, California. Roy, what's your question? Why are you recommending bottled water when tap water is safe, meaning all of the drinking water regulations? Recommending bottled water only drives panic, diminishes trust in tap water, and is more costly. Is there, is there any issue with the water, Dr. Fauci? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm very sorry, with due respect, I'm not sure what the question is. I mean, you drink tap water, that's fine. I drink tap water, I drink bottled water. I don't. I don't no, no, but when people are told to, to, you know, stock up on supplies, oftentimes they are told, uh, I mean, not by us, but by others, you know, get bottled water, you know, stock up in bottled water. It does seem, given that the water supply is not, from what yeah. we know, not under threat, there's no reason no. really to hoard bottled water. 
No, no, there's not. I mean, some people, for reasons that they may feel or actually live in a place where the, you know, the water isn't necessarily top-notch, most of the places in the United States it is. I have no trouble, nor does my wife and family, of drinking tap water. We drink bottled water sometimes. Bottom line, there's no problem with tap water. All right. Let's take another uh, video from uh, one of my favorite cities, Mary, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Let's take a look at this. Since we now have people who have recovered from the coronavirus, is it possible to develop some sort of treatment using the antibodies that they developed as a response to the disease? Didn't they do something along those lines with Ebola? Right. Good question, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Very good question. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what we're doing. We're gearing up for a study of both convalescent serum, which is a big word to say taking the serum from someone who's completely recovered, getting it in a way that you can reinfuse it in somebody else, or getting out the proteins, the gamma globulin, the antibodies from that serum and use it as a way of both treatment and possibly prophylaxis, but mostly treatment. Very good question. It's one of our top priorities. Uh, Ilana, so, so you're basically sorry, saying that uh, you're basically saying that because someone's recovered, they make these antibodies, and then you could use those in somebody else. Did that work with Ebola? You know, uh, the, as a matter of fact, it wasn't anybody from convalescent serum. It was a version of that. It was a monoclonal antibody, which was derived from an individual who was either vaccinated or whatever, where you took the, the, the cells that make antibody, you clone it, and you make a monoclonal antibody. Monoclonal means it's very specifically directed okay. against the pathogen in question. That was Ebola. And in fact, the two treatments that showed a really good degree of success in the treatment of Ebola were two monoclonal antibody preparations. Uh, Dr. Fauci, Alana Gilman in Winewood, Pennsylvania, has a question. Alana? Yes. Uh, thank you, Anderson. And thank you, Dr. Fauci. My question is, can you become reinfected with coronavirus once you've had it? Right. So that's a question that's often asked. There's no design study that has proven that you're, quote, protected. But if this virus, and I have every reason to believe that it will, acts like any other virus that we've had any experience with, once you get infected and recover from that infection, your body will mount a response that will protect you from re-exposure and re-challenge with that exact virus. Now, there may be other types of coronaviruses that you may not be immune to, but if you get infected with the novel coronavirus that we're talking about tonight and you recover, you can be pretty certain that you're protected against reinfection. You, you sort of addressed this, but just, just how confident are you in this, uh, Dr. Fauci? I know we don't know, but I mean, it seems like such a fundamental question. If people could get reinfected again, that would, that would change a lot of things. So how confident are you that you do get some protection after you've been infected? You know, um, there's different degrees of confidence, Sanjay. There's confidence based on absolute data, and there's confidence based on a projection from what you know indirectly. Mm. We don't have a study in which we have definitively proven that when you recover, if you get re-exposed, you are protected. 
But I've been dealing with viruses my entire professional life. And in the viruses in which you get infected and you get a complete response where you clear the virus, that you can be protected. The duration of the protection varies. It might be lifetime. I can tell you if you get infected with measles, it is highly likely that you are protected from, for life from, from, re, from re-exposure to measles. Highly likely, maybe a little bit less depending on how long you live. Other mm-hmm. viruses we have less experience with. But projecting what we know about viruses, I would say that it's a very good chance that you're protected. Okay. Dr. Fauci, I know we have to let you go. Just one quickly, I, I've had so many people the last couple of days come up to me and say that they don't believe that they think this is a media exaggeration. They think there's some you know, political reason why people are, or the government is doing this or talking about this. They say the death toll, that it doesn't look anything worse than a, a, a flu. What do you say to those people? I mean, I, it's, I'm not sure you can rationalize with them, but what do you say? Well, all they need to do is look at what happened in China and take a look at what's going on in Italy. I had the opportunity multiple times to call my friends and colleagues who, as I mentioned, many of them trained here in the United States, some in my own laboratory over the years. And if you hear the pain in their voice about what's going on there, you take it really seriously. Dr. Fauci, appreciate all you're doing. Thank you. Just ahead on the subject of immunity and protection, we'll talk to one of the volunteers in a vaccine trial going on in Washington state, one of the hardest hit areas in the U.S. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Our next guest in tonight's CNN Facebook Global Town Hall is on the front lines of the development for a vaccine. He's not a doctor. He's a test subject for the experimental vaccine. A healthy father and family man from one of the hardest hit regions in the United States, Washington State, who, when he's not offering uh, his body to science, works in technology. We're very thankful for what he's willing to do. Welcome, Neil Browning, the second person in the trial to receive the experimental vaccine. So, Neil, you're healthy. You haven't been infected with coronavirus. How do you decide to, to participate? Completely through happenstance, um, a series of events unfolded where the offer came up and I accepted it. I feel like it's all of our duty to do the best we can to help recover the world from this pandemic. That's great. Uh, Neil, uh, so the way this works, I understand, is that you you got one dose of the vaccine so far. And one thing about this vaccine, it's not a dead or, or weakened version of the virus. So I'm, I'm curious, were you counseled that you might actually get the infection? And, and, and how did you feel after getting it? It was much less invasive than a normal vaccine I've had. It uh, pretty much had no pain, no swelling, no discoloration. Um, I feel completely normal now. The only way that I would actually be able to contract COVID-19 right now is to be exposed to someone who has it and is contagious. There's no way that I can get this from the way that this vaccine works. And so what is the process moving forward for you? I mean, do you have to isolate yourself so that you aren't exposed to somebody else? Or or how does this work? Yes, I'm certain that there would be complications were I to contract COVID while under the vaccine study. It would definitely compromise the way that this is working. So I'm definitely exercising, social distancing, washing hands, um, basically self-quarantining myself to the house. That way I'm not exposed to anyone who's likely to infect me. 
uh, moving forward, I have to go in back to the research facility once a week and have a blood draw. After the first four weeks from the initial vaccine, I'll be given a second dose and go through another weekly regimen of doing blood draws to analyze the way my body's reacting to the vaccine and hopefully creating the antibodies to fight things off. And, and do you know how long this is gonna take? I mean, it's a question in everyone's mind. I don't know if they told you a timeline or something for the results of the trial. No, they weren't given any guidance on the results of the trial. Um, I'm certain that when they compile all the data from all 45 members uh, taking part in it, then they will be able to release a report. But for right now, um, the idea is the initial vaccination should uh, cause an immune response in my body. Uh, they're doing the blood draws weekly to verify that. The second dose is supposed to simulate if I were actually um, being infected by it and how quickly my body recognizes the uh, COVID-19 proteins, reacts to them and fights them off. Well, Neil Browning, I appreciate you, uh, you doing what you, what you are doing because it could benefit a whole lot of people moving forward. Thank you so much, um, a brave thing to do. Joining us now is Dr. Celine, uh, Celine Gounder, CNN Medical Analyst and Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at NYU Medical School. She's also host of the Epidemic Podcast, also seen as Richard Quest, anchor of Quest Means Business. And of course, Dr. Sanjay Gupta is with us still. Uh, Dr. Gounder, what do you make of, of what Neil Browning just shared about the vaccine trials? Well, you know, it's the very beginning of, of research on these different vaccines. And I want to emphasize these are candidate experimental vaccines. We don't know if they work yet. We don't know if they're safe yet. And there's a whole process to determining whether a vaccine is safe and effective. So there's the phase one, which is small numbers of people, which is what he's participating in, which is really to figure out, are there any severe side effects? And then maybe are there immune responses? And then you have the phase two, which is a larger study where you're looking more specifically at immune responses, antibody responses, and then phase three, which is a large number of people. And th those studies are done over the course of months. And you're really trying to look at people who get the vaccine, people who don't get the vaccine. And among those who get it, do you see lower rates of infection? But that means it needs to be done in the context of community transmission among people at risk. And that's not going to happen overnight. That takes time. So it's a process. And, and when Dr. Fauci estimates we're looking at 18 months for a proven vaccine, you know, that's that's really fast if mm. we can achieve that. Um, let's get to questions. Sophia Scully is a communications executive at Novartis Pharmaceuticals. She's in Florham Park, New Jersey. She sent in a question for, for us. Um, let's take a look. Is that a video question? No, uh, I'll read it. Uh, oh, here it is. someone in the restaurant who is either ill with the virus or is not aware that they have the virus comes in contact with the food or the packaging, is it then possible that I can contract the virus through that food or the packaging? What about that? So um, it's interesting. So first of all, it, you're not going to uh, you know get it from the food that you're eating. This isn't one of those types of viruses. It is a respiratory virus. But I got to tell you, I, so we've been ordering food out as well, and I'm curious, what, Celine, if you've been doing that. But what we've what we've uh, basically done is if we receive food, we'll try and take off some of the packaging actually on the porch even and leave it out there. And then when we come in, we sort of wipe any of the surfaces that any of the, the remaining packaging is on and then obviously wash our hands. I mean, again, keeping in mind that it's it's hand touching and then then hands to, to face. So that, that's how we've sort of approached it. And it, and it seems to have, have worked. I feel pretty good about it. Dr. Yander? 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the highest risk moment in getting food delivered to you is actually the face-to-face interaction if you have one with the delivery person. So ideally, you would be able to pay them online, tip them online or whatever platform you're using for ordering food, and then have them leave it outside your door, wait till they leave, and then get the food. And then I would do exactly what Sanjay recommended. I've got another question. Nisa Reclusada is a research director of an entertainment company in Los Angeles. Uh, What's your question? Hi, thanks so much for this opportunity. Um, With these stressful and uncertain times, it seems even more important to be mindful of our physical and mental well-being. Um, And I see being outdoors and nature, physically active, and getting fresh air is a great way to stay healthy. Uh, My question is, are we being advised to stay away from local, state, and national parks and beaches at this time as well? Um, I want to still be able to enjoy the outdoors, but do so responsibly, following social distancing and other recommendations. Yeah. It's a, we hear this a lot. Uh, Sanjay? Yeah, look, I mean, there, there's uh, no reason why you can't go outside. I, that, that's, uh, uh, it's one of those things where you, th- you talk about the social or physical distancing, as I like to call it. You just got to maintain that when you're outside as well. And if you're, you know, if you're exercising, if you're riding a bike or something like that, make sure you're, you're wiping surfaces and still practicing good hygiene. As, uh, as we've been saying, as Anderson and I have been saying, you, 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 in some ways you have to behave like you have the virus. So I think that that helps dictate your actions. But no reason I don't think you can be outside. Got another question. Ali is a software developer, sent us this video from Beirut, Lebanon. Let's take a look. Hi, my question is concerning grocery shopping. Should we disinfect our groceries after unpacking from a plastic bag? Knowing that people tend to pick up and put back different types of items such as fruits, vegetables, cans, and so on. If yes, how should we disinfect vegetables? Is water and white vinegar spray an effective solution? What about plastic and cans? Dr. Gander? Yeah, I would suggest wiping down the external surfaces of of canned or wrapped foods. You should be washing your fruits and vegetables produce anyway. Soap and water is just fine for that. Um, But, you know, again, I think um, making sure you sanitize your hands, wash your hands after you do all of that, after you unpack your groceries is also a key, key step here. Um, This is not just a a crisis for the medical community. There's also the economic impact and this all uh, that this is having. I want to bring in Richard Quest to shed some light on what's going on. Richard, I mean, the ripple effects of this are just I mean, they are huge. They're only getting bigger, whether it's large businesses, small business owners have a ton of questions about, you know, do they have to pay their rent? Can they get loans? I mean, it's it's a mess. Well, if you think of it this way, the chance, yes, of course, uh, thousands of Americans will catch this virus. We're seeing the numbers already, but the majority will not. The majority of people will not actually get this virus if they follow the good advice. However, just about everybody watching tonight is going to be impacted in some way economically. It'll be because they're laid off because their business has failed, because they have to seek food stamps or they have to seek uh, help with the rent. Credit card debt could be rising. So the understanding of the economic position and why the government, why the Treasury, why the Fed has thrown so much money at it so quickly gives you an idea. But it won't be enough, Anderson. There's going to have to be many, many more billions, if not trillions of dollars put forward by the Fed, 
by the Treasury before this is going to be no. even alleviated. Uh, Richard, we have a, a viewer question for you. Uh, Keisha Scott is a manager in the hospitality industry from Boynton Beach, Florida. Uh, Keisha, what's your question? Hi, um, my question is actually, is there going to be a plan in place for all of those people that have already lost their immediate income as their shift to shift based tipped workers, not just check to check? Um, also, will there be any kind of financial forgiveness for um, not just rent and mortgage, but car insurance and car payments and things of that nature for basic cost of living? Because all of us that work in service industry, we base our shifts off of AM and PM, not the checks that we're going to get. Yeah, it's a great question. Richard? It's a brilliant question, bearing in mind the number of people who will be affected. We don't know mm. is the short answer because it's the trans First of all, you do have the two checks that will be coming from the federal government. But as anybody can see, that is at best a stopgap measure. It won't pay the rent for one month in many parts of the country. Now, the reality of the kids, the banks and the credit card companies are saying, get in touch if you have financial difficulties. But we do not know yet because we haven't seen the policies of what they going to do to actually help you. For instance, here in New York City, all the major landlords, the companies of the major landlords have agreed there'll be no evictions for the next 90 days for rent, uh, for rent arrears. Hmm. But we haven't seen any form of formalized arrangement that will actually put money in people's pockets or give that sort of relief. Yeah, then there's some landlords of, you know, small buildings are saying to their tenants, look, you still got to pay rent. I still have a mortgage Absolutely. to pay. Uh, Dr. Gounder, Richard Quest, thanks so much. Uh, a lot more ground to cover is our CNN Facebook Global Town Hall. Uh, coronavirus facts and fears continues in just a moment, including the California lockdown spreading massively now to Los Angeles. Plus, we'll have more answers to your questions and reports from across the country and the world. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching a CNN Facebook Global Town Hall. I'm Anderson Cooper, along with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. In this hour, we're going to be joined by a top expert of the World Health Organization who will be answering your questions. Also, Sean Penn talks about what it's like to do relief work alongside the U.S. military, as his organization did uh, after the earthquake in Haiti, and whether, uh, what kind of a role the military might end up playing in this. What are they capable of? What do they do uh, better than anyone else. Also, we'll be taking questions from Facebook and Instagram from mental health professional who's joining us as well. But we want to begin the hour with the striking contrast in the country today. On the one hand, deserted cities. On the other, people still crowding into spring break hotspots, doing, frankly, the opposite of what just about every professional recommends and carrying the virus back home with them to their parents and their grandparents and their loved ones. There is also breaking news. Los Angeles County now joining San Francisco and ordering people to stay at home. 10 million people, 10 million more people being told now to shelter in place. Uh, Sanjay, that's obviously a very big move for, for Los Angeles. Yeah, and I think people really have to un understand, though, what it means. You know, shelter in place, Anderson, you and I have heard that term. Uh, many of the stories we've covered, you know, shootings and, and sometimes even storms. But, you know, I, shelter in place means typically you, you stay where you are. And, and yet it's unclear, I, th I think, still to a lot of people exactly what they're still able to do. So I, so I hope that gets clarified and defined a little bit more precisely. Is it OK to go out? I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit in the first hour, but, you know, to go out for a run, to go out yeah. for a, a walk as long as you remain distant. It's not you're not, it's not the act of going outside that's the problem, it's being around other people, is that correct? 
Correct. Yes, and I, and I think that that's a, that's an important point that you still can go outside. I think I think what I'm struggle with, and I think a lot I've heard a lot of other people is shelter in place. Really, the right terminology then for this, if it's some where you, if you still can go outside, which you should be able to still go outside, but maybe there's a different term. And you know, look, we're all learning together. This is a brand new thing that we're facing. So, but I think you know uh, how you define things and how you name things is going to matter so that it really settles in for people. Yeah. Um, well, again, more than half of all California. Is now under, we'll call it stay-at-home orders for now. Let's check in with uh, CNN's Dan Simon in San Francisco, where the, uh, the stay-in orders first began. Uh, so explain, Dan, how it works in the Bay Area. You know, what have people been told and what are people actually doing? Well, hi, Anderson. First of all, we are along the shoreline in San Francisco. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge behind me. But what police are looking for is they want voluntary compliance. And I have to tell you, for the most part, they're getting it. When you drive around and go to some of these high volume areas, high volume shopping areas that you typically see, the streets are empty. That said, as you've been talking about, there are plenty of exemptions. For instance, people can go to the grocery store, pick up a few things, they can go to the gas stations. And also, they can come outside and get some fresh air and and come to the beach and get a little exercise or toss the football around or or just, you know, take in the sunset. So that is the situation here. As you talked about it, this whole term shelter in place, it it is a little bit of a misnomer because you you think about hunkering down during an active shooter situation or you think about a tornado uh, approaching, uh, you know, a city. So in this case, that word, that term really does not apply because you see so many people out really, you know, kind of taking in the sight this evening in San Francisco. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, people are obviously heeding this. Do they, do they, are they told a sense of how long this is going to last for them, Dan? Well, right now the order is in place until April 7th, but this afternoon you heard Governor Gavin Newsom saying that more than half of Californians could come down with the coronavirus in eight weeks. Eight weeks. So, you know, when you look around, think about that for a second. More than, uh, you know, half of the people that you see around here could get the virus. So they're saying April 7th. But when you when you think about those numbers, you have to think that they're going to extend that Mm. well beyond April 7th. Dan Mm. Simon. Dan, thanks very much. Now, the opposite of just about everything you see in California being played out of the beaches across the southeast is people put having a good time on spring break ahead of keeping us all a bit safer, themselves included. Earlier today, the mayor of Miami, Florida, urged people to shelter in place. And Florida's governor told people to stay off the beaches, saying, quote, spring break's done. However, he did not close those beaches. And Gary Tuckman is up, up the coast a bit on Georgia's St. Simon's Island. Um, Gary, I mean, we reported a bit on this last night. The situation on the beaches, what does it look like now where you are and, and elsewhere? Anderson's spring break is not done here in Georgia beach towns. We're on St. Simons Island, which is an absolutely spectacular, beautiful place, a very popular spring break destination every year, including now in 2020, because the governor of the state has not mandated any closings of restaurants, bars, or beaches. So the bars, the restaurants still open tonight. The major partying will take place after 10, 11 o'clock tonight. And the beaches, they are crowded. East Beach is a popular beach here in St. Simons Island. When you get to the parking lot today, completely full. 
You go on the beach, very crowded. Now, some people are making a point to try to find empty areas of the beach and sit separate from each other, but they're in a minority. Most of the college students there, and it's not just college students, there are also mm. families, children, and I saw many people in their 70s and 80s are sitting close together, five, seven, nine, 11 people. What some people told me when I was talking to the college students, a couple of them said the exact same things that President Trump recently said, that they felt that this would wash over, that they felt this was like the flu. A more common thing was what a lot of teenagers say. If you were a teenager or you have a teenager, you know that you feel invincible. And a lot of them said, it's a new virus. I've had viruses before. I'll be okay. But then we asked this question. We're not moral policemen, but we asked questions about morality. And we said, what if you get it and you go home and your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents are home and you get them sick? They're the ones who are more likely to die. And then a lot of these teens who are there, a lot of these young people, and some of them are yelling at us right now, please be quiet. Please be polite to us. Thank you. We're on TV right now. A lot of these people told us, they started thinking about it after we told them grandparents, parents, they could get sick. And one young lady I was talking to said, I'm not worried about this. There are always viruses. She, she then told me, well, I live with my grandmother. And she started thinking about it, too. But Anderson, while we were on the beach, it was 80 degrees and sunny today. And it's easy with the waves coming and the sand was beautiful. It's easy to forget about the coronavirus. But as we walked off and walked back in the parking lot, it was like waking up from a good dream. We thought about the coronavirus again when we were leaving. Yeah, well, it's a bad dream for all of us watching that. Gary Tuckman, thanks very much. Appreciate Thank it. You. Joining us now is Dr. Uh, Mike Ryan, executive director of the World Health Organization's uh, Health Emergencies Program. Uh, Dr. Ryan, first of all, when you see the report, people here in America not heeding the warnings about social distancing, hanging out on the beaches, going to bars uh, there in Georgia, uh, I'm sure it's not just happening here, but other parts of the world. Um, uh, yes, um, I mean, we've seen uh, similar situations arise elsewhere, but uh, I think as, uh, as, as Tony and others have said earlier in this program, we really do need people to cooperate, to see beyond themselves, to see the others in the society that are vulnerable and take responsible action. We are one society, we're one people, it doesn't matter where we are in the world. Uh, we have to be responsible for the health of ourselves, but more importantly, for the health of others. Uh, Dr. Ryan, uh, a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, I'm sure you've been following uh, some of the events here in the United States. At a White House presser earlier this week, uh, President Trump said that the United States was not offered the, the, the test for coronavirus and also said it was, quote, a bad test. I'm wondering if you can clarify these points. What, what, did the WHO ever offer a test to the United States? Uh, WHO developed the tests mainly to support uh, countries with weaker health systems. Uh, the, the United States has a fabulous uh, scientific system, a wonderful capacity to develop tests, and whilst developing those tests uh, under the leadership of, of CDC. Uh, so, no, we did not offer the, the, the test to the US, which would be standard practice if we were asked. Obviously, we would have, uh, we would have uh, responded. Uh, and in terms of the, and what, what the about issue this of issue the about the, the test, so, so what about this issue about how, how good the test is? I mean, the, the implication was that the WHO developed these tests, but they had a high false positive rate. In fact, listen, listen for a second, Dr. Ryan, to what Ambassador Burke said. Quality testing for our American people is paramount to us. It doesn't help to put out a test where 50% or 47% are false positives. I mean, that's, that's kind of incredible. I mean, if you have a 50% false positive, Dr. Ryan, I mean, it's really, it seems like it's no better than flipping a coin. How, how good is the test? 
Um, I think uh, Debbie's uh, comments at the time, and I followed that uh, press conference, uh, were taken uh, out of context because she wasn't referring to the WHO test uh, at that moment. She, uh, they were talking about the U.S. tests and about how careful the FDA had to be in ensuring that the tests going out to the U.S. population were high quality. Uh, it was only after that point that uh, the points were made regarding the WHO test. The WHO test has been validated in a number of collaborating centres in independence reference labs, and we've seen that test perform extremely well in the field in multiple countries. We've distributed one and more than one and a half million tests to 120 countries around the world, and that test is performing extremely well uh, and has been validated and continues to perform well in the field. Okay. For the, uh, the first time, I would say China reported no new cases of the virus. Um, how confident are you in those numbers and their data? And, and if it's true, how significant is that? Um, absolutely uh, no reason to doubt uh, the Chinese uh, numbers. Clearly, there's been a falling trend over the last number of weeks. And we've seen that uh, occur right across the country and now in, in, in Wuhan and Hubei province uh, themselves. The Chinese have put an amazing effort in. Uh, they've focused on public health measures aimed at containment. They've focused on physical distance. They've focused on community education. They've focused, in some cases, in movement restriction. These are strategies being applied by everyone around the world right now. Uh, the Chinese obviously had the disease before anyone else did, and they've had more time to make those measures work. But uh, we have absolutely no reason to doubt those numbers. And uh, in fact, most cases that are occurring in China now are, the, are as a result of importations from other countries, and that's what China faces now, mm. is the possibility of the disease receding in China from outside China. So that is, that is good news, obviously. I mean, a lot of people are looking to these other countries to figure out uh, what's going to happen here. But at the same time, as you know, Dr. Ryan, uh, sadly, uh, Italy surpassed China's death toll now. China is a country of more than 1.3 billion. Italy is a country of around 60 million, much smaller. So how, how concerning is that, what's happening in Italy? Um, I, I think uh, it is very concerning. Uh, obviously, again, Italy is further down the track than, than other countries. They were uh, taken by surprise by what happened, as, as has been the case in, in a number of countries. They also have a, a, an older population profile, and uh, they, got a, they, 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 they had to deal with an escalating uh, epidemic, particularly in the north of Italy. And clearly, the health system there has come under tremendous pressure. But we have to commend the frontline doctors and nurses and the communities who are standing fast and showing the solidarity that's needed to work together to, to push this virus back. Uh, but I think other countries really, really need to step up and learn the lessons that are being learned in Italy right now. We have to push this virus back. It's not just enough to do social distancing. It's, it's good to have that. It's great to separate people. But we have to be able to go after the virus. We have to be able to suppress the virus, not just see it pass over in a large wave and stress our health systems all over the world. So when you, when you say that, that it's not just social distancing, what more needs to be done? In the United yeah. States, for instance, what more needs to be done? Are you talking about contact tracing? Yeah, or? yeah it, it's, it's, it, each country has its own um, uh, set of challenges. Um, you have the finest uh, public health system and the finest public health servants in, in the world in the U.S. Tony was talking earlier about the Ebola treatments. They, they would never have been possible without NIH. 
uh, we've got people about Redfield and Antrigan at CBC. I mean, most of the world has based its public health architecture on that has, that has been developed in the US. You've got a tremendously strong system. The issue now for, 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 for looking at the United States, you've got 50 states, you've got a different situation in each of those states, and you need to tailor the responses in each of those states. And where you get a chance, you need to go after the virus. And contact tracing and isolation of cases and quarantine of contacts is still a strategy that can be used, and I know that that strategy is being used in the US. It's it's a mixture of, of strategies. It's a daily process of adapting those strategies. Uh, and the US is, is a strong nation with very strong leadership and has the capacity to fight. Um, one of the difference with con- problems with contact tracing here in the US, though, is if because of our because of the the holdups, whatever you want to call it, with the test, the lack of test that still is out there. Um, if you don't test people, you don't know they're positive. Therefore, they may be positive and you don't have time to contact trace them because you don't know they have it. So you're missing that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yes, and I think, again, Tony mentioned earlier how the U.S. has scaled up the capacity to test, and it's really important that we identify all uh, confirmed cases. We need to test suspect cases. We need those cases to be isolated. And, and it is difficult in, in, in very intense environments. It's difficult to do the kind of detailed contact tracing. Uh, but uh, in, in Congo, uh, in, in Ebola, at the peak of the outbreak, we were tracing 25,000 contacts a day in the middle of a war zone. It is possible to do contact tracing, even in the most difficult circumstances, but it does require uh, a real scale-up in public health uh, capacity. And, uh, and where that can be done and the virus can be pushed back, we can save lives. Um, Dr. Uh, Will Ripley, a correspondent for CNN. Will Ripley is in Tokyo, and I know he has a question for you. Will, go ahead. Hey, thanks, Anderson. Uh, Dr. Ryan, uh, in less than an hour, the Olympic torch is going to be arriving here in Japan, and uh, officials continue to insist that they're moving forward with plans to host the Olympics on schedule at the end of July. Uh, they point to the relatively no, low number of confirmed infections here. It's, it's around 900 for a country of 125 million people. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has not enacted emergency law, despite having the ability to do so, pointing to that low infection rate. But the thing is, here in Japan, they're testing a tiny fraction of uh, what they're testing in other countries. The latest numbers that we got from the health ministry uh, on Tuesday indicated that Japan had tested around 15,000 people. South Korea is testing 15,000 people a day. So how can the world feel confident that Japan has the coronavirus situation under control? Can the world feel confident given you know, that we're seeing such, such limited testing here? Dr. Ryan? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, your, your numbers are, are correct, but remember again, when you look at that uh, test per, per million population, uh, the, that 13,000 test, if, if you look at uh, testing per million around the world, uh, the UK has tested 450 per million, whereas uh, that's 10 times that in Korea and, and Japan and others sit somewhere uh, in between. Uh, so from, from that perspective, and, and we spoke with our Japanese colleagues today online, and they really have worked very hard on identifying clusters of disease and really working hard on contact tracing and isolating those contacts and quarantining those contacts. So I have no reason to believe that, the, that they're, they're not making progress in Japan. And, and the, the, the Olympics is, is, is a major global event. 
uh, as are other events around the world. And, uh, and I think uh, Japan has, still has hope that the, the, the Olympics may go ahead. But that is going to be based on a risk management decision. And, we're, and, and, and obviously the, the government of Japan and the IOAC, with advice and inputs from us, will not make a decision to go ahead if there's danger to athletes, dangers to, danger to, to, to spectators. And a lot of that will depend on how the disease evolves in the coming few weeks. Yeah, Dr. Ryan, I want to thank you um, very much for, for joining us. I know how busy you are, and I want to thank uh, Will Ripley uh, as well. Uh, Sanjay, this is a question that was sent into, uh, into Facebook via, uh, via Facebook, and I want to read this. It says, how long does the virus stay in the system? A study stated after 37 days a patient can still shed the virus. Is that accurate? I think that was like a, kind of more of an outlier, but, but explain yeah, I mean, look, you know, we, we are still collecting data. As you know, we, we interviewed, I think it was Carl, uh, last, last week in the town hall. And I don't remember how many days total. He was getting tested every other day. What you hear from most people, and Dr. Fauci just sort of repeated this earlier, was up to, you know, 14 days. The quarantine sort of time period is based on the fact where they think most people will, will no longer be shedding virus at that point. But clearly, uh, and, and by the way, the, the, the typical amount is around five days. But clearly there are some outliers and that's going to affect, I think, how we think about quarantines and how we think about contact tracing, which you were bringing up earlier, Anderson. It is, uh, you know, I talked to Dr. Fauci about this I, 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 and I don't want to kind of relitigate the past, but just the, the, the failure of testing yeah. in this is extraordinary. I mean, this is yeah. I mean, you hear you hear Dr. Ryan talking about, you know, America has the greatest health, you know, the health care, public health system. Uh, and yet. You know, they're still talking about, well, you know, they're they're efforting those tests and efforting is not a verb. You know? <laughs> no, I know. And, and I think I think Will was uh, obviously giving some really important data about Japan uh, as an example as well. And look, I, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, how to think about this. But but I think the idea that obviously, uh, again, there's this balance between uh, wanting to to do the public health sort of job here, but also not wanting to alarm people. So, you know, would you under test, for example, in Japan, because you really don't want to jeopardize the Olympics. You don't want to sort of, uh, you know, alarm people. It's not the right answer, obviously, Anderson, to, to do that. But these are countries that can test. They've obviously uh, had examples of other countries around the world that are testing. So you do have to ask, you know, what, what happened here and what happened in Japan? Was it just failures? Um, or, or is there under-testing for, for, for some particular reason? I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see when we look back on this, even, you know, in the next several days or weeks. Yeah. Um, coming up, uh, you know, I talked to Bill de Blasio uh, last night. He said he'd like to see the U.S. military uh, play a role in New York, uh, responding to this building hospitals, building uh, field hospitals. The governor of New York, Mayor Cuomo, has talked, uh, excuse me, Andrew Cuomo, has talked about uh, the Army Corps of Engineers. We're going to talk with someone who's seen the military's work up close, uh, actor Sean Penn, who worked uh, with uh, the military in Haiti, uh, running one of the largest displaced person camps in Port-au-Prince. We'll talk to Sean coming up. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. With the Pentagon preparing to deploy another Navy hospital ship and two active-duty Army mobile hospital units, the military is clearly contributing to the relief effort and may, in fact, contribute more. New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio says he wants the military to deploy hospitals in, uh, in New York City, and a hospital ship is preparing to leave. 
What more, though, can we expect? One answer might be to look back at the U.S. military role in trying to help another crisis, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. As part of his relief effort, Sean Penn worked with the U.S. military uh, in Haiti, uh, helping coordinate getting thousands, tens of thousands of people, food, medical care, ultimately back uh, into uh, their homes in some cases. Uh, Sean ran one of the largest, uh, or if not the largest, uh, in displaced person camp in Port-au-Prince, worked closely with the military where he uh, got an up-close look at how they operate, and I'm glad he could be here for tonight's town hall. Um, Sean, it's good to see you. I'm wondering, given your experience on the ground in Haiti, you work closely with the military. I think you both grew to respect each other. I know you kept in touch with the military officials that, that, that you work with closely there. What kinds of things does the military do really well in these kind of situations? Well, in the in the circum in in in, in the uh, the instance of the Haiti earthquake, uh, the uh, command and control was out of uh, Southern Command, South Common, Florida. Um, we had direct coordination with them. They, of course, with the Pentagon and with the State Department, and of course, ultimately with the White House. And the 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 actions that were taken, we had twenty two thousand troops deployed immediately into Haiti. There were uh, um, the um, uh, the uh, uh, Army uh, Army Corps of Engineer. Uh, we had extraordinary amount of help from them deploying doctors all over the country from the from the military uh, and and uh, the 82nd Airborne in particular, bringing uh, with helicopter access to helicopters and the rest of their horsepower, the ability to uh, secure locations for food distributions, uh, so to create safe safe zones for that to happen. Um, and and also to 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 create safe corridors for doctors when there were when there were social disruptions disruptions in the street and emergencies for the doctors to be deployed to. Um, in what I have been feeling out of that experience for the last month, is that this was a a, a certain time that uh, with the command control probably uh, or, or most logically out of uh, Northern Command in Colorado Springs, that if that was the center control where they have uh, direct coordination with FEMA, with the CDC, and with the governors of the state, and then with the state's own emergency coordination offices, many of which are already activated, but that without the, the, the United States military's uh, force intervention, the, the, we have been left to this kind of, of chaos. There's, uh, I've said it many times, there's, there is no greater humanitarian force on the planet than the United States military. Uh, their logistical skills, their commitment to service, their care for the people. Uh, of course, there it was a non-fighting mission as it would be here, with the exception of the virus that we're all fighting as, as, as one species against it. And I think that uh, it's, it's, any little activity that's happened has happened far too late, but it's really time to give the, the military the full breath command and control of this operation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Sean, you know, along those lines, one of the big differences, I guess, obviously, with the coronavirus compared to Haiti is that uh, we, we, we know it's coming. I mean, unlike an earthquake, I mean, that happens, obviously, without any kind of warning. So when you add that into the equation, what kinds of things should be happening right now before things get even worse? 
Well, you know, we're we're seeing things dribble out. Things like the uh, Defense Production Act being being employed. This is uh, uh, something that most certainly, sh you know, I could talk quite a bit about what should have been done. Uh, now, uh, the lives lost that have been lost, the amount of people that are sick, clearly what we have to do and what the military does so well in terms of coordination, coordinating with health professionals, coordinating with hospitals, building hospitals. They can build a hospital in 25 minutes. And I'm talking, you know, when you have the USS Comfort deployed, we, we evacuated many people to the USS Comfort uh, when it was there in Haiti. It, it's, it, in this case, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a showpiece all but for the 1,000 people that, that will be a, a fraction of, of what's necessary overall. There in Haiti, it was a, an, an essential trauma center. Uh, but that in itself is is really not what we're talking about. We are talking about a full deployment where then, of course, governors of the states will and can elect to uh, put their uh, uh, National Guard in support of those uh, of that command and control in Northern Cop. It, it does seem, Sean, that, you know, there's uh, you know, deploying the military inside the United States is obviously something that is, is very rare, um, is a very rare thing. National Guard would normally be the first uh, the, the first ones to be deployed. We've seen some of it uh, certainly here in New York and in, in New Rochelle. Um, is the National Guard, their capabilities that much different than what the military would be able to to bring to bear right away? I, I assume it is. Absolutely. Look, there are very experienced soldiers and, and, and serious uh, officers who have either uh, previously been in the military or who, who did their careers in the National Guard. And I don't want to dismiss anything. I think they would be the first to say that the the kind of perishable skill aspect to it, that which has to do with, you know, maintaining a, a calm, uh, focused mission uh, uh, focus. Uh, in, and w which we saw be so important in Haiti, where there was so much desperation and and so much uh, berating of of, uh, of forces, because people become extremely desperate and frightened in these circumstances. Also, they're in great pain, uh, suffering losses and uh, or sickness in their families, uh, or separation from their families. In this case, so I think when you have a massive uh, logistical force. Uh, with that kind of training, with those kind of resources available, which far exceed uh, the National Guard, um, uh, we have to understand, you know, I know that, that, that it would also be of some concern to people that the, uh, that the uh, administration might exploit the, the use of the, the military in, in some ways. It's not even, this is not a question for me. Uh, I, I don't think that there's, that there's anything but that this, you know, we could... We sh we it should be our job, your job as journalists, our job as citizens to watch for that and to, to hold the feet to the fire uh, of the policy within which the, the military is used. But there 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 is there can be no argument about oh it's going to become a police state and so on and so forth. These are these people understand America and what it's about. Most of these yeah. soldiers that I worked with in Haiti. Uh, and and they would be uh, a, a, a I wouldn't blink before the, I would have put the, the the command and control in their hands um, a month ago certainly today. Mm. You know you know Sean I, I also know that you you fa you founded this disaster relief uh, group called CORE, and I wonder you know what are you and your organization doing in regards to coronavirus? I mean, do you, do you have plans specifically with this going forward? 
Well, yes, of course. In terms of California, I've been in touch with Governor Newsom, and I expect that we will coordinate. And North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, we have an ongoing program with the Lumbee tribe there. And so we're, we're managing some uh, food distributions and so on, and, and, and in particular to the elderly in, in that area. Uh, in Haiti, there's so far uh, not a, um, a, a, a test positive, so our, our staff there in, in the schools is, community, is uh, educating kids and setting up wash stations uh, in, in pre- preventative measures. Um, in the Bahamas, one of the issues that, that the, the greatest issue that's hitting the Bahamas right now is the economic one. Is of course, uh, tourism is at a standstill, and right. uh, so it remains to be seen whether we're going to have uh, a problem there. And, and, and then in Nashville, Tennessee, after the uh, the storms there, there were a lot of roofs lost, and we were preparing uh, upwards of a thousand roofs, which has uh, been hindered. Uh, of course, by the, the the outbreak. Yeah. Well, Sean, it's uh, it's good to talk to you. Difficult times, and appreciate uh, hearing your thoughts on on the military, the National Guard. Um, we'll talk to you again. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, both of you. Thank you. Coming up just ahead, more of your questions on how to manage the fear and stress worrying about your health and the the ones you love. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back to tonight's CNN Facebook Town Hall. We want to take a moment to discuss uh, the psychological impact of a virus that's made close contact and the comfort it can bring out of the question. You know, coping with the stress of a disease or even the threat of it That's an important part of how one fights illness itself. The question, though, how to do that, especially with children. So joining us is uh, psychologist and author Dr. Gretchen Schmelzer. Welcome. Uh, Dr. Schmelzer, you you and I spoke last week after I read a piece that you wrote, a blog post that you did. And and it was really, uh, it talks so much about how at times like the, the need for selflessness uh, is so important. And, and so many of the things you say really resonated with me. And we talked about citizenship and the importance of community. Can you just talk a little bit about, about what you wrote and what you want people to, to think about? Oh, yeah, I wrote that piece um, to help people understand that you can have a heroic action that doesn't look heroic. <laughs> that, that by staying home, by um, not going to the store, last week people were still moving around a lot. Um, that it was really important for people to take their individual behavior and see it as an act of citizenship, to see the larger collective, to see the we. To to see the we in all of this. Yes. And to um, actually see the bigger picture. I, I really, you know, Anderson, you and I have talked about that a lot. I mean, we are all in this together. How I behave affects you. How you behave affects me. And it is a larger purpose. I, you know, I have a question, doctor, about this. You know, we're getting further into this crisis, obviously, in the United States. I have, you know, three kids at home. People have been home now for a number of days. They're, they're social, physical distancing. Yeah. Um, they're starting to, it's starting to settle in that, you know, we're in this for a while. This isn't a snow day. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a season of this. What should we be looking for in terms of mental health uh, in, in our family and our friends? 
It's a great question. You know, I think the first thing to take into account is that each kid, you know, the ages of kids means they need different things, right? The group I'm more worried about are teenagers right now. Teenagers are supposed to be leaving their homes and uh, engaging with their peers, and they're supposed to be trying out new things, and they're going to get less of that right now. And so mm -hmm. they need to find ways to feel their impact and to stay connected to the groups that are important to them. Um, the middle age kids, the seven to 13 year olds, they're used to doing things where they are really learning and mastering things. Those were your soccer players and the flute players, and they've lost all of that right now. So they really need a chance to settle in and find ways to keep learning, to keep mastering things, and maybe all those things are brand new for this period of time. Dr. And the younger kids actually are the group I'm less worried about. They're, mm. they're actually getting more time with their parents than they usually get. Mm. Dr. Schmelzer, we've got a, a couple of questions uh, from our audience. Uh, Jackie Stevens sent us this video from Idaho Falls, Idaho. It's a little bit fuzzy, but I think it's powerful. Let's take a look. How do I explain to my timid, easily frightened three-year-old grandson that he cannot touch, hug, hold, or be kept by his beloved grandmother right now. My grandson recently had another grandparent pass away and it affected him deeply. How do we explain this to him? I am 65 with underlying health problems and my husband is 82. Doctor, what do you, what's your advice? My advice is to explain that um, for right now, grandma needs a special bubble. And doesn't mean that they can't stay connected, that they can't talk, that they can't read to each other online. I don't know what the physical distance is, but young children can understand that you know, there's a, way to stay connected even if they can't be held. I think it's hard for both parties, so I think also it's important for the grandparent to give permission to the young children and help them see that they're still, they can feel the love coming back, that they have special waves, they have special winks, that they draw each other pictures. There's different ways of staying connected. You know, I think another thing, Doctor, that's so unique about this, it, this is not a single traumatic event like a tornado or a hurricane or a fire yes. or something like that. I mean, you're dealing with uh, things that are going to be changes that are big changes for a period of time. I mean, maybe a long period of time. So, so how do you, again, assess and manage your own mental health? I mean, it's a different time frame of things that we're now looking at. Well, I think it's actually, I would encourage people to find coping strategies that help them feel less stressful. Some of those coping strategies might not be something they want to keep for the rest of their lives, but will help them through this period of time. Um, being more optimistic or uh, being able to... Um, separate themselves from the feelings sometimes the way surgeons do. Um, they, it's important that people allow themselves to cope the way they need to. And this is a repeat, essentially a repeated trauma. This is going to go on for a while. And so people are going to adjust their behaviors and they're going to have to unlearn some things when we come out of this. 
You, you've also compared what this country is going through and what a lot of people are going through to, uh, to grief, in a way. Um, yes. In, in, what, in what way? Well, first of all, I think people, I've watched it over this last week. People are going through the stages of grief. At, you know, there was the week of like, well, no, it's not a big problem, to, mm -hmm. um, well, I can do this, but I can't do that. To I really saw earlier this week acceptance that people almost were, were crying, they were depressed, they had taken in the gravity of this situation. And, and now people are trying to figure out how they're going to live in this new normal for a while. And I think we really need to help people understand they have the resources to do it. They haven't had to do it before, but people, everybody's got a lot of strengths. And Spouses and partners need to talk to each other about what strengths can they bring to each other during this time. Mm. Uh, Dr. Christian Smelcher, I appreciate your time as always. Thank you so much. Anderson, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's so interesting to, to sort of think about um, uh, the fact that we really, you know, we've had some advance warning on this, but not a lot of people have had time to, to prepare. I mean, I, I think about my own household. We're, we're still every day sort of thinking, how, how is next week going to be different than this week? I mean, we, we don't even have the luxury, I think, of sort of thinking two, three, four weeks in advance anymore. It's just a totally different way of looking at the world. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. Uh, in New York City, you know, I, I think about it as kind of the days after 9-11, which were, yeah. you know, obviously the, the worst days for, for the city. But there was this extraordinary um, kind of coming together of people, not necessarily physically, but just, you know, people on the street saying hello to each other, talking to strangers. Um, and, and I've sensed some of that. It's, you know, different because of the physical distancing. Um, right. But I, I, I was walking to, to I was coming to work today. Um, uh, by myself, walking alone on the street, social distancing from anyone around me. Um, and, and yet people would say hello and, and, uh, and chat and sort of check in um, to each other. It wasn't just people saying hello to me because they recognize me. It was, it, and it's a nice thing. It's nice to feel that sense of, you know what, we are all in this together. Yeah, and I do. You know, I think that part of it's going to get stronger. I, I hesitate. I don't know about you, but I hesitate sometimes to describe anything that's Pollyannish at all about this because I think there's so many people who are really, I mean, struggling with this. It's, I mean, gonna, it's and, decimating and, people. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. Yeah, about it. I mean, I, I say, you know, stay home as much as possible, and I get messages saying, "Well, that may be easy for you or for other people, but you know, I, I'm." I don't have a job then. I don't have my money, you know. So it's it's very real in terms of different things affecting people differently. But I but I agree with you. I, I think sometimes a a common threat uh, galvanizes a population, a world, uh, unlike anything else. So again, I, I'm I'm very careful about not to spin this into something Pollyannish because it's obviously terrible what's happening. But there can be some good things that come out of it. But I also think there's a lot of businesses and government and local government officials that haven't caught up with the reality for an awful lot of people, right. small business owners, people who are working paycheck to paycheck, uh, tip to tip. Um, and, you know, they're talking about, oh, yeah, the check will be in the mail as opposed to, you know what, your, your rent is, you know, you, you have no rent. For, there's no more rent for you for the next month or two months or however long. Or, yep. you know, there, there's... Uh, there's, you know, credit card. You don't have to pay your credit cards right now. Whatever it may be, there's a lag on that that, that, that needs to get going. We're going to talk more about all of this in a second. Before we get a break, there's a breaking news out of California. The governor, Gavin Newsom, just moments ago announced that the entire state is now under stay-at-home orders. All 40 million Californians are to stay at home uh, as much as possible. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
The breaking news just minutes ago, all 40 million residents of the state of California now under orders from the governor to stay at home, including our next guest. He endured quarantine aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship, then quarantined in a hospital in Nebraska where he was being treated, unable to go outside or even open a window, having tested positive for the virus. He is back with us again tonight. Joining us is Carl Goldman. Um, Carl, are you now back in California? I am. I came back in Monday night, and uh, as I just heard and you heard, we're now quarantined in our entire state. First of all, let me ask, how are you feeling in general? Before we get to how you're feeling about now being feeling, quarantined again, but how are you feeling in general? I am feeling great. I totally rid of the virus. It really only hit me for about a day with the high fever. If I wasn't contagious, I would have been back at work 48 hours later. It ended up being 29 days for me to finally test negative a bunch of times to be able to get out. So it took me a long time to rid the virus, but really I didn't have any symptoms after a few days other than a dry cough that lingered with me. And, and Carl, I mean, you know, look, you were in isolation for, for weeks and weeks at that hospital, and now you're, you're hearing this breaking news that's basically saying you, you, you're ordered to stay home, right? I mean, how, how are you feeling about that? Well, I had decided based on the reaction to, to me back here in Santa Clarita weeks and weeks ago, my wife and I made a decision that I was going to stay quarantined for at least a few weeks here. So I, I feel for the entire state right now, we're going into a, a different mode of operation uh, starting tonight. But I'm just glad to be home. And if I have to stay in my house and go in the backyard and get to pet my dogs, as I kidded, I now actually miss cleaning up the dog poop. So now I get to do that. Um, you, know, you know, again, just for viewers who are joining us now, I mean, this is a, a remarkable move by the governor of California uh, for the entire state. It was in San Francisco previously. Earlier this evening, it was announced also for Los Angeles. Now for the entire state of California, uh, people are being ordered to to stay at, at home uh, as much as as possible. Um, and uh, as Carl, what does that actually mean? I mean, for for you, uh, we've seen in San Francisco, obviously, people, you know, they say you can go out running, you can go out for walks. It's not a question of not being outside. It's a question of keeping social distancing and keeping trips outside to the absolute minimum. Exactly. And it's making lemonade out of lemons. You know, my wife looks back at the quarantine and sees it as a gift. I'm only been I've only been home a little over 48 hours, so. It's not quite a gift yet to me, but I know I'll see the positive side of it. We have uh, a lot of family pictures that have been sitting upstairs, and now my wife can put that scrapbook together. I can certainly find things to do. We still will be operating our radio station, although we're doing a lot of that remotely. And I'll continue to write my journal. We'll post that on hometownstation.com. I've been doing that daily since day two of the Diamond Princess, so... It will we'll get through this. All of us will get through this. We just have to figure out new ways to operate over the next few weeks or maybe a month. Yeah. And then uh, then hopefully we'll get back to normal. Yeah. Well, Carl Goldman, I wish you the best. And I'm glad you're uh, glad you're home and uh, and back uh, with your wife, who's been picking up the dog poop. And I know in your absence. So I'm glad <laughs> she's uh, I'm sure she's glad you're back too. Well, uh, welcome to our new normal, which thankfully includes news like Carl's recovery and the great and selfless work of people who've been giving they're all to help people like Carl, people in labs, in hospitals, on the front lines 
around the country and the world, nurses and doctors. And I want to play more of that moment from Barcelona in Spain. As all across that country, all across the entire country, at 8 o'clock each night, people confined to their homes go to their windows and their balconies, and they do this every night, I'm told, applauding, banging pots, shouting, Viva los médicos, long live doctors. Something that now happens every night at 8 o'clock. Listen. Those are people thanking doctors and nurses and medical technicians. And those are also people saying, we are here. We are together in all of this. It's a sign, one of many, that in a race between fear and hope, hope is making itself felt and sprouting with the season. It's taking root in Spain and China and in the awakening, unconquerable place within us all where fear only lasts so long, but hope never dies. Brother Richard Hendrick, a Franciscan priest in Ireland, has written a poem about that place. It's titled Lockdown. Here are some of the portions of it. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there is isolation. Yes, there is panic buying. Yes, there is sickness. Yes, there is even death. But they say that in Wuhan, after so many years of noise, you can hear the birds again. They say that after just a few weeks of quiet, the sky is no longer thick with fumes, but blue and gray and clear. They say that in the streets of Assisi, people are singing to each other across the empty squares keeping their windows open so that those who are alone may hear the sounds of family around them. They say that a hotel in the west of Ireland is offering free meals and delivery to the homebound. Today, a young woman I know is busy spreading flyers with her number through the neighborhood so that the elders may have someone to call on. The poem continues, So we pray and we remember that, yes, there is fear, but there does not have to be hate. Yes, there is isolation, but there does not have to be loneliness. Yes, there is panic buying, but there doesn't have to be meanness. Yes, there is sickness, but there does not have to be disease of the soul. Yes, there is even death, but there can always be a rebirth of love. Wake to the choices you make as to how to live now. Today, breathe. Listen behind the factory noises of your panic. The birds are singing again. The sky is clearing. Spring is coming. And we are always encompassed by love. Open the windows of your soul. And though you may not be able to touch across the empty square, sing. That's beautiful, Anderson. I wish I wrote it. People get to, I know, but it's beautiful. And I'm glad that people um, get to hear this message tonight in the midst of all the numbers and data that we've been giving you. Uh, That's really beautiful. And I just want to add another personal note, if I might as well, Anderson. I want to talk for a second about uh, the doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, the people who've been a part of this healthcare system for so many years. Uh, the people who, uh, for them, this part of the story really hits home. Even this week, uh, the hospital where I work um, had its first patient uh, pass away from the coronavirus. Everything we are doing right now is to help our healthcare workers. It really is. And I want to share with you a, a message that has been going around on social media. Uh, pictures of doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists, everyone battling this on the front lines, they are sending this message. I don't know if you can read that, but it says, I stayed at work for you, so you should stay at home for us. Remember that. Remember that in these coming weeks and 
think about your actions and think about what the people who are taking care of you are sacrificing for us. And also remember that you too can be a part of the solution. You can help find uh, out how to, to help by just going to cnn.com uh, slash impact. You find a lot of good sources there and ways that you can be a part of solutions. Yeah, well, we are really all in this together. Sanjay, thanks very much. The news yeah. continues here on CNN. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.